y'all ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? If you haven't, you really should. American Film Institute calls it one of the 100 best ever, and so uh, it's worth your time. At any rate, let me jog your memory if you have seen it, and if you haven't, let me give the whole thing away to you. It's, it's been out for quite a while, so no spoilers. But it, it, it stars, James, yeah, before I was born, that's right. <laughs> it stars James Stewart as George Bailey, and he's a man who in his youth dreamed of traveling around the world. But somewhere along the way, he makes some sacrifices for other people that mean he never gets to leave his really small town. Now we find him in the film as a weary and broken man who, through no fault of his own, is going to be declared bankrupt. And so he stands on the town bridge about to commit suicide. But just then, his guardian angel intervenes. The angel gives him a vision of what life would have been like had George never lived. And so he sees that his life counts, that it's made a difference. He discovers that he has lived a truly good life, a wonderful life, in fact. And he's touched the lives of many people in small but decisive ways. See, in a lot of ways, that is what Paul is doing in Titus. He's, he's giving us a vision of life, Christian lives, wonderful lives, godly lives that touch people in small but decisive ways. Lives that have eternal consequences. You see, because knowing Jesus, because we know Jesus, we are necessarily changed by Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes to us that he tells us his purpose for writing is to further or build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Godliness, In other words, faith in Jesus necessarily leads to Christ-like living because theology always determines biography. Belief always determines behavior and creed always determines our conduct. And it is the conduct of Christians to which we turn our attention this morning. Last week I informed you that Titus chapter 3 is built around good works, God's good works, and our good works. And so we considered God's good works together that week, which was last week, and we looked at the gospel and we reminded ourselves that it is he who saves us. We see it there in verse 5 where it says he saved us and we used the analogy. It would be as if you woke up in the back of an ambulance and there were tubes everywhere and you had the mask on your face and the paramedic said, hey, there's been an accident. It was bad, but I saved you. Such is the nature of our salvation that when God makes us alive in Christ through the hearing of the gospel, all at once we awake to see him as our glorious Savior and say those wonderful words, I believe. So those were, that was God's good work, the work of salvation. And so this week we're going to look at our good works, and our good works come in response to that great salvation. Those who have been regenerated, which we said is another word for um, born again, or who have experienced the new birth, those who are united together with Christ by faith, by implication of being united to Jesus, participate in the works of Jesus. They do good works. And so we're going to work through chapter 3 in two parts. We're going to look at good works in the community at the front end there, and then hopefully, if I don't run out of time, we'll get to good works within 
the community of God's people. Good works in the community and good works in the church would be your outline. I actually didn't give you an insert because I had no idea how far we will get, so this will be a little bit less structured than we're used to this morning, um, but we're going to try to cover the material together and get you to lunch on time, so it's a win-win. One of the things you will notice, though, as we uh, unpack the passage is that Paul is making a strong contrast, and he has throughout the book, a, a contrast between the lives of Christians and the lives of Cretans or non-Christians. I chose Cretans because they're at Crete. Contrast between the lives of Christians and Cretans. And if you remember in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul describes the lives of false teachers or of Cretans, of non-Christians, as th- they, he describes them as being people who profess to know God but deny him by their works. He says they are a detestable, disobedient people, unfit for any good work. And then right away in chapter 2, at the beginning, he says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, which points us back to one of those central themes of the letter, which healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. And then he runs through that, those classes of people who says, older men, older women, younger men, young women, slaves, all of you who call yourselves by the name of Christian, you need to live lives that adorn the gospel. You need to live beautiful lives that make Jesus look as beautiful as he really is. And he's contrasting that with the lives of those who are denying their faith in Christ by the way that they live. And then we find ourselves here at the beginning of chapter 3. And Paul is kind of continuing this contrast in a very uh, evident way. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 3 right there, he, he he says that Christians are to be ready for every good work. Do you see that? And so there's a direct contrast going on. You have those false teachers that are professing to be Christians, and Paul says they aren't following healthy doctrine. Their lives are sick. Their faith is a counterfeit faith. They are unfit for any good work. But if you are a true Christian, if you're authentic, well, then you will be ready for every good work. And so that is the contrast that we see throughout the whole book. It's one of the major themes is the contrast between the authentic and the counterfeit, the true and the false. And so one of the things that this particular text invites us to do, one of the things the book of Titus asks us to do is to see whether or not our lips and our lives agree. We're challenged to make sure that our Christianity is real. J.C. Ryle writes, Perhaps you think there is little danger of your faith not being real. If so, you are wrong. The Bible frequently reminds us of this very danger. Look at the parables spoken by our Lord Jesus. See how many of them point to the contrast between the real Christian and the merely outward Christian. For example, the parables of the sower and the wheat and the tares, the wedding garment and the ten virgins, among others. These all show the danger of a counterfeit Christianity that is not real. So this morning, friends, it is vitally important for you to discover whether or not your faith is real. And so we want to do according to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when he tells us to test yourselves and see whether or not you are in the faith. This morning, that's what I want you to do as we examine some of the good works that are to mark Christians. I want you to look at the text and see if that's a description of your life. Because it's by doing the works of Christ that we authenticate our faith in Christ. 
Not saved by the works, don't get me wrong. We're saved by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. But it's true of us that when we are saved, we can't help but to devote ourselves to every good endeavor. You can actually think of the text a little bit if you want, like a photograph. If you've ever had a group shot, gone to a camp, or uh, maybe at workplaces, sometimes they have those big group shots, and then you see it later on in the picture. One of the first things you do, and, and it's not wrong, but you look for yourself in the picture, right? You want to find where you're at and say, all right, there I am, I'm looking great, or I'm not looking so good, or you know, whatever it is. But, but that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to think about your neighbor and whether this is a description of them. I want you to find yourself in, in the picture painted by Paul and see if you're in it. Because those who have believed in God devote themselves to good works. That's the main idea of our text this morning, and it comes almost verbatim from verse 8 in chapter 3, where Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, that's the gospel, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These, the good works, are good and profitable for everyone. So if you want to memorize some of the content of Titus or even just the main idea of this message, look at verse 8 of chapter 3, uh, put it in your memory palace, and it will serve you well on down the road. So let's pray together and, and get into the text a little bit. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And this morning, we, we bring ourselves under its interrogation to see whether or not our faith is real. Lord, we ask that you would show us the truth about ourselves. And that for those of us who discover that indeed we are in Christ, that we do have your spirit, that you have indeed called us sons and daughters, pray that you would lead us into thanksgiving, the joyous exaltation of you. And for those of us who are here, discover that our faith is counterfeit. We ask that you would make us new, that you would save us, give us new hearts, so that we might say those words, I believe, and in so saying them reveal the truth that you have been at work in us this morning. Father, my hope and my prayer that everyone would walk out of here delighting in the truth that though they deserved to die, you died in their place. Father, you offer to us all good things. Help us to see that glorious truth this morning that you have been so good to us and that we need merely to receive your gift. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're going to talk about doing good in the community because that's kind of the context of the beginning part of chapter 3. But before we do that, I want to emphasize once more that Christianity is always a religion of done rather than do. We say we are saved by Jesus living, dying, and rising from the dead as our substitute, not by our works. You can see verse 5 again there, right? He saved us, not by 
works. And so it's in response to God's mercy that we do good things. And we obey his commands as an expression of our love for him. Not out of cold obligation, but out of passionate, affectionate obedience. And we do this because Jesus has said unto us, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so it's in keeping the commands of God that we express our love for God. The Christian devotes him or herself to good works because they have been loved by Jesus and desire to show their love for Jesus. God's work of salvation precedes and fuels our careful devotion to good works. You can think of it this way. I dropped this line. I said, does this make sense to one of my buddies this week? And he kind of shot it down, but I'm using the analogy anyway. The gospel is the umbilical cord unto our good works. It's what gives life to our good works, gives them meaning. And he said to me, what, after you've been a Christian nine months, you cut the umbilical cord? And he blew up my analogy. But I said, no, we'll just keep it on the front end. The gospel fuels our good works. And so it's with the gospel we start explicitly. I want to start reading back at verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people, a special people, for his own possession, eager to do good works. You might have a translation that says, zealous for good works. Say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. We see once more, if you want to take a a road trip with me, back to when we talked about uh, 11 through 14 in chapter 2, we said that grace transforms us and that grace trains us. Grace transforms us into Jesus' people by giving us new hearts, a new hope, by rightly ordering our loves and redeeming us from the penalty of sin. And then we said grace trains us by teaching us to say no to ungodly living, yes to godly living, and calling us to wait for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, we said that Christians right now live out the reality for which we hope then. I used a really lame analogy to the Prince song, 1999. Remember, it says, tonight we're going to party like it's 1999. And I said, well, Prince is saying here at some time in the late 80s, early 90s, I don't remember, that I want you to party now like it's your last night on earth, and so I want you to live right now like it's then, like it's 1999. And what we said was, that's kind of what Paul is saying here a little bit. He's saying to Christians, look, heaven is coming. It's a perfect world. Live now like it's then. Live out the implications and the truth of who Christ is making you right now. I read a wonderful psalm this week, and and I I just loved the way it was worded in in the New King James Version. Uh, It said that God takes pleasure in his people, and he beautifies the humble with salvation. 
thought, man, what a wonderful picture of us. That he is making us absolute beauties in Christ Jesus. And that when that process is finally finished, that we are going to be just like Jesus. It's going to be awesome. And grace trains us. It's transformed us. It's started that process. The first installment of our adoption into God's family has been paid and it will come into completion when the new heavens and the new earth come. And we're in that sanctification process of becoming in practice what he's declared us to be in truth. And so we live right now as absolute beauties, or at least we try to. Grace is training us. It's preparing us for the future. Knowing the truth of the gospel leads to gospel living, to wonderful living in our lives. And when we've been changed by Jesus, we'll want to participate in the work of Jesus, which means being eager or zealous for good works. We will desire to do good things for other people. This means that when it comes to doing good, your yes is on the table. Right? It means that the inclination of your heart is to say yes to helping someone, to doing that favor, or performing that particular duty. When I was in college at West Virginia, I had a buddy who had a pickup truck, and he was pretty strong, a pretty jacked, buff guy. Uh, you know, he worked out, went to the gym a little bit. At any rate, every semester, without fail, someone would ask him, hey man, can you help me move because in college, I guess you move around a lot. I did a bunch of times, probably like five or six. But so there would be multiple people every semester asking to help them move. And I, I told him more than once, I, I said, Z, if I were you, I would have a policy that said, I don't help anyone move, ever. I would make an excuse, hey, I can't do that. I'm washing my hair. That works for girls. I don't know if it worked for him. Uh, got washing my hair that day. I got something going on. Or I might just sell my truck because you put in a lot of time. It's a lot of work. He never did take my advice, though, and he always helped every person that asked him because his yes was on the table. I think the truth is that his readiness to serve should probably exemplify all of us a little bit more. We should be less selfish and eager to help those around us. So maybe what this looks like in your life, or maybe I was thinking a little bit too much about my own, means when, when your wife asks you if you can do the dishes, you've already decided the answer is yes. It would be your joy. You stand ready for that good work. Or maybe your parent or sibling asks you for help, I don't know, like carrying in the groceries. Your yes is on the table. You are ready to happily serve. Perhaps you have a client or an employer or a school teacher that asks you for something in particular that is above and beyond the norm. Your yes is on the table. Perhaps you could even go a step further. What would it look like if no one had to ask you for your help or extra effort because you had already offered it? Dish is already done, joyfully. Groceries carried in. Effort fully given extra mile run. We are to be eager to do good. 
Paul outlines some practical ways that Christians are to do good at the beginning of chapter 3 for us here. And one of the primary ways that he says we can do it is simply by being good citizens. He doesn't use that terminology, but that's the idea here when he writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is not an easy command in Crete. Remember, the word Cretan is synonymous with liar. And earlier on in chapter 1, Paul tells us that Cretans are liars and lazy and that they're evil brutes. You know, he's like quoting one of their own poets there. And then he continues on and says, this is true, (laughs) right? Like, it's a true story. They're not the best people in the world. And their government is no different. One, One Greek historian wrote of Crete that it is impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Still, Christians there were commanded to obey the government. See, no government is perfect, but those who follow Jesus are called to submit themselves to the rulers and authorities that he has sovereignly placed in those leadership roles. Now, everybody, when you say something like that, that's a strong word to submit to the government. Everybody always wants to look to the exception. Or bring the but what abouts? And there certainly is a time and a place where we would say, uh, along with Peter in the Acts, you know, I have to obey God rather than man if we were asked to violate our consciences or to sin against God. Yes, certainly. But that's the exception. Don't look at the exception. Focus on the rule here. We are to be loyal, to submit, subject ourselves to the authority of those who have been placed over us. Christians should be the best citizens of any nation. We should be the best citizens any nation could hope for, not because of some sense of patriotic duty or or nationalism, but because of our unmitigated devotion to the true king of the universe, our devotion to the kingdom that we are ultimately from, the kingdom of God. We are resident aliens waiting for the blessed hope. And do we live now like it's then? We live in light of who Christ has made us. That should be beautiful for the society in which we live. It means we should be at the forefront of developing our communities into places that people really want to live. It's our faith and our devotion to Jesus that compel us to do good works and to be good citizens. It's our submission to and cooperation with the government that is evidence of our submission to and trust in God. Paul calls us to be good citizens, not to be in opposition to the government, but in cooperation with it. He continues, speak evil of no one. Slander no one. Be peaceable or avoid fighting is what verse 2 says. And, And this sounds pretty easy, right? Don't fight with anybody. Don't say anything bad. But I think it's actually really, really hard. I mean, have you ever tried to go just a day without saying something mean or negative about someone or something? Be honest. It's hard. I think, I think that gossip has become the water in which we swim. We've just become so used to it. It's like a normal part of life, and we can hardly identify it anymore like asking a fish about the water he swims in, right? He says, what water? Because we can hardly recognize it, we can hardly recognize when we are guilty of it. One of the ways Paul tells us that we can be 
um, about doing good works, that we can be good citizens, is by promoting unity through our refusal to indulge ourselves in conversations about the most recent scandal or somebody that we, we just don't like that much. We're to be those in the community that promote good. I love the way Tim Chester says it. He says this, when it comes to grumbling and gossip, we should be a cul-de-sac, not a channel. When you hear grumbling or gossip, you should be the place it stops, not someone it travels through. That's a great exhortation. Be a cul-de-sac. I don't know many people aspire to be cul-de-sacs, but, but I'm telling you, that's a great thing to be. Be a cul-de-sac, not a channel. Also commenting on our words and our hearts, James writes in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 of his book, we praise our Lord and Father with the tongue, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth? My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. See what, he, what he's getting at here is what Jesus says, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouths speak. And so if there is bitterness within you, if there is envy and malice and hatred within you, some of that stuff we see down in verse 3, if that's what's within, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. And if the world hears you with bitterness on your tongue, with ugliness on your tongue, they will never see the beauty of Christ. We should be those from which sweet, Words come. Wonderful words. Words of life and encouragement. Our words reveal our hearts. And when we speak poorly about others, we make Jesus look bad. Christians do well when we speak kindly and refuse to wallow and gossip about others. I do wonder, if everyone heard all of your conversations, what would they think of your Jesus? How we talk about, who we talk to, and who we talk with matters. We need to leverage both our lips and our lives towards living at peace with everyone towards promoting good things. We need to look for ways to bless our neighbors, not curse them. Paul continues with what is kind of a summary command here in verse 3. Is it verse 3? It's verse 2, I think. Sorry. In verse 2, it says, showing all humility and gentleness to all men. Uh, some of your translations might say perfect courtesy, which kind of carries the weight of the word there. It's saying that, that we would be nice to our neighbors, right? And if there's one thing everybody in our culture agrees on, it's that we don't like mean people, right? You've seen the bumper stickers, mean people suck. It's true. I think everybody agrees with that. Nobody likes mean people. Sadly, however, I think often Christians are, right or wrong, categorized as some of the meanest people in the world. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, after all, the golden rule comes from Christianity. Y'all remember the, the golden rule from when you were in grade school? Treat others as you want to be treated? 
Remember, Jesus says that whatever you wish the others, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or we could say it another way. We said it this way when we went through Mark. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here is saying, be nice. Not hard. Be kind. Be loving. He's telling us to live out Philippians 2, not only inside our churches, but outside of their walls. Among people that do not yet know Jesus. With the hopes, yes, because we care for them, because we love them, not, but with the hopes that they would come to know this glorious truth. It says, do nothing, this is Philippians 2, to refresh your memories, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important, more significant than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his or her own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, humble people treat others as more significant than themselves. And when we see others as more significant than ourselves, we will be able to give ourselves for their good. You see, giving of ourselves, generosity, is at the very heart of what it means to do good works. Good works are generosity in action. That was one of the major questions I had this week as I was thinking about this passage. So what exactly are good works? Right? Paul gives us a couple things here, but there's not really anything tangible, right? Very specific. He, he doesn't say, you know, go and wash somebody's windows or sweep off their porch for them. So what, what are good works? How can I figure out what they are so that I can do them? And the best answer I could come up with was this. I said, good works are generous works. So we can discover how to do good things for our neighbors and in our communities by asking and answering questions like, how can I be generous? How can I enrich the community? How can I make someone's day better? So perhaps some of you will go out to lunch after church today. Maybe you ask this question, how can I be generous to those that are in the restaurant? How can I show the love of Christ, how generous Christ has been with me to someone? How can I make my server's day better? Maybe you decide that it's a, it's a generous tip. It means something. I used to work in the restaurant business. I used to hate Sunday afternoons. All the church people would come in, be super demanding, and they would not tip well, if at all. My wife actually has a, you know, she's been a Christian a long time, um, and she also was in the restaurant industry, and, and she can tell you the story of, of she had a table leave her one of those tracks that's like a $100 bill, a fake $100 bill, and it says, let me tell you the answer that's worth more than this or something, and it, it shares the gospel on the track. But she had a table leave her that and nothing else. What a poor reflection on the gospel. How you live your life in the community matters. People notice. What's our rep? The people, when they see those, those of us that, that are members here, when they see Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, they'll say, those are generous people. They're about doing good, even when it doesn't really benefit them. They want the community to do well. Maybe we should take their Jesus seriously. Maybe another example would be if you visit a coffee shop or the grocery store, you ask yourself, how can I bless the other people in here? And you let somebody go in front of you, or, or maybe you pay for their groceries or their latte in addition to your own. 
Maybe it just means you take some time to get to know the people working in those places and treat them like people. It's a crazy idea. Rather than servants. Know their name. Where they're from. Maybe you want to get involved at, at the schools. There's a reading program that, that needs help over at the uh, primary school here. Perhaps you could volunteer. Maybe it's something as simple as asking your neighbor when you're headed to the dump, hey, uh, can I take your trash for you? I see that you, you probably have trash. I'm headed that way. would love to take it for you. How can you be generous? How can you do good works? I think it's important we ask these questions so that it's not just some ethereal thing like, oh, good works, they're out there. We maybe do them, we maybe don't. We want to know the tangible ways that we are serving others and serving our community. We want to represent the Lord Jesus well. We want to live wonderful lives that impact others in small and decisive ways. I think additionally, being good citizens of our community means treating those outside of Christ with compassion rather than contempt, rather than with arrogance. It's foolishness. Christians are to strive to bless this broken world by proclaiming the new world that is to come in word and deed. Friends, when we live out the gospel, we bring a glimpse of the happiness of heaven into the unhappiness of this world. We get to live out the reality for which we hope. That is a great task. And it's an opportunity that you have every day. You have it today to make an eternal impact. That's the opportunity that lies before you. Mission is always done in the context of everyday life. The bedrock of missions is doing good in the ordinary. In your home on your street, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, that is where you are to do good works. Loved ones, your lives are important. How you speak and live out the gospel has eternal consequences. It's crucial that you live on mission, ready for every good work in light of Jesus' work in you. When you wake up in the morning, you better be ready to go to war because the temptation is always going to be to serve yourself, to fall back into that way you once lived before Christ came and made you alive together with him. You have to stand up in the morning and you know, read Ephesians 5 and put on that armor of God. Be in prayer and to be thinking about, God, how can I walk with you today? How can I serve you today? How can I love my neighbor today? Who can I share the gospel with today? God, I know that you want to use my life to help others come to know you, to bring glory to yourself. Have your way with me. Temptation is to get lost and to forget who we are, which is why I think Paul immediately in verse 3 starts and says, it says, be nice to everyone, uh, be good citizens, treat them with compassion rather than contempt. For we too, because we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly, lavishly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become, we may, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Christianity ought not make us proud, but grateful and humble. I heard a story recently, and and we'll finish with this. Heard a story recently about an English politician named Bernard Wetherill. He was he became Speaker of the House of Commons, and upon his retirement, he gave an interview to the BBC. So, in the course of this interview, they're they're going around his the Speaker's home, and it's on TV. And so, you are seeing all these grand hallways, and the walls are gilded, and there are these fancy paintings. The place is full of history, and some of the most significant people in the world come to stay there, and it really is quite remarkable. And, and at one point, the TV interviewer says to, the, to Mr. Wetherill, this is a pretty lofty position that you find yourself in. How, how have you navigated yourself through these waters of influence and significance, yet kind of stayed down to earth? And in response, Mr. Wetherill put his hand in his pocket, and he brought out a small silver thimble. His father had been a tailor, you see. And when his father died, his mother gave him his father's favorite silver thimble. And when he became a member of the House of Commons and then became Speaker of the House, his mother said to him, Bernard, you keep that thimble in your pocket. You remember where you came from. You remember who you are. Treat everyone with kindness and grace and respect and humility. Brothers and sisters, the gospel ought be the thimble in our pockets. We mustn't forget who we are in Christ. Beautiful. Or where we came from before Jesus saved us. Hateful, detesting one another. Dead in our sins. We have compassion and care toward all people, the most wicked and evil of people because we know how wicked and evil we ourselves once were and how powerful the blood of Christ is. Powerful enough to turn sinners like you and me into saints, members of God's own household. Powerful enough to give us the heart of Christ so that we are eager to look for ways to bless our neighbors and communities. I wonder, do you? Do you look for ways to bless your neighbors and the community? Have you been saved according to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? Because friends, knowing Jesus means being changed by Jesus. Faith in Jesus necessarily leads to Christ-like living. Theology always determines biography. Belief always determines behavior. Creed always determines conduct. So what does your conduct say about your Christianity? 
do you see yourself in the picture painted by Paul? Is your Christianity authentic or counterfeit? I pray that you are following Jesus and living truly wonderful lives. And if you find yourself outside of the picture this morning, my hope is that you will find yourself yearning to call out, I believe, Lord Jesus. Help my unbelief. My prayer is that you would be born again this morning and that a week from now, a year from now, you would indeed find yourself in this picture painted by Paul, one who is authenticating their faith by doing the works of Christ in the community. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the gospel. We thank you that we are more wicked than we ever dared dream and more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Lord, help us to do these things. We know we're not perfect and we're going to to fail to, to live perfect lives. But we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to walk in the good works that you have prepared before the beginning of time for us to do. Help us to to be your ambassadors in the community to our neighbors and loved ones in a way that's genuine so that when they look at us, they really do get a sense of what you're like. That they would look at our lives and think, their God must be wonderful. Help us to teach others about you with our words and our actions. Help us to make sure our Christianity is real, God. Help us to turn from our sin and to follow you once more this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.